great to be with you all this morning. Uh, my name is Pastor Isaac. I get to be one of the pastors here of this community, and it's really wonderful to be here, quote-unquote, with you virtually. Um, I'm just really excited to share from God's Word this morning. Uh, if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, uh, you probably don't know this, but most of you who do know me know that I am Jewish, and uh, you know that I probably work with a, an organization called Jews for Jesus, um, which is weird. It sounds like vegetarians for meat for some people, but it's not. Um, but one of the things that I get to do with that organization uh, is actually go and share in churches all around the country um, about Jewish festivals and, and the significance of them and the meaning behind them. And one of the main ones is Passover. And I've gotten the opportunity to go uh, not once, but actually five times to Kentucky, uh, rural Kentucky, to share about Passover. And um, I'm a city boy. Uh, I was, you know, born and raised in the city, and it's, it's just a different world out there. And so, you know, in the city, you have a certain way of getting around. And uh, in the country, people really like to give directions. Uh, if you, I, was, I was speaking at multiple churches in rural Kentucky, and so I was completely out of my element already. And as I was headed to the next church, after I had spoken in one, the pastor pulls me aside and he says, hey, so what you're going to want to do is you're going to want to get back on the interstate, and then you get off when you see the corn silo, and it's the red one, and then you get off there, and then when you see the farm on the left, you make a left, and you keep going for about, I don't know, like five miles. And I was like, okay, great. <laughs> I, I am not paying attention to any of these directions. Uh, I'm just going to pull up Google Maps, and I'll be there, no problem. Uh, the problem is, Google Maps was not working. I was way out in, in the country, and I had no, no reception whatsoever, and I could not pull up Google Maps. And also, it was pitch black. The only lights outside were the headlights of my car. And so I couldn't find my way. I was driving. I was trying to pull, see, like, get into cell reception and service and, and navigate my way. I was like, oh, man, I wish I would have paid attention to this guy's instructions. Um, and eventually, I almost hit a deer. Um, <laughs> I pulled over. I kind of recalibrated, not my phone, but like myself. Um, and I just kept going. And eventually, I found a town where I had cell reception. I asked people where I was supposed to be going. My point in all of this is that I had been formed by something. I had been formed by the city and not by the country. I had been formed by how you get around and how you navigate the paths in urban areas and not in rural areas to know that I should actually pay attention when this guy's trying to tell me where I should be going and how I should get there. And let me suggest to you today that that is exactly what wisdom is. This morning, we're going to be looking at the wisdom literature of the Bible, the books of Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes. And we're calling this the formation of justice. We're focusing in on these three books, and wisdom is concerned with the formation of God's people. And these books are unlike any other books of the Bible. Rather than giving you the thou shalt not 
of the Torah and the thus saith the Lord of the prophets. They invite us into a process where we can be formed into people that live according to the order that God designed the world to work with. That is what wisdom is. It is the ability to live into the way that the world works, to live the good life. So you might be wondering, what does that have to do with the story of justice? Well, last week, Ryan taught us that righteousness is when everything is working the way that it was designed. If it is righteous, it's working properly. Justice is when something needs to be put back right because it stops working the way that it was designed. Wisdom is the means by which we can engage in that work to effectively do it. And what we're learning from our cultural moment is that people can devote themselves to seeking good things like justice and righteousness, but actually go about it in selfish and destructive ways. Now, this does not invalidate the virtue of seeking justice, the actual tangible what we are fighting for, but it does reveal a gap. And what goes in that gap is wisdom. What's been revealed is how much we've been shaped much more by things like technology and other forces competing for our attention in this highly anxious culture than by the truth of Scripture, of God's Word. And so we see this as we witness, you know, unproductive conversations on social media, people virtue signaling all over the place, and being so easily triggered by ideas that we disagree with. This is a toxic environment for real conversation to go on. Rabbi Edwin Friedman, uh, who besides being a rabbi was a philosopher, spoke of five characteristics that this kind of toxicity in our culture brings. He says it brings reactivity, herding, H-E-R-D, blame displacement, quick fix mentality, and a lack of leadership. And there's a pastor in Australia named Mark Mark Sayers who comments on these five characteristics in his book, and he writes, Our Western system has become emotionally feverish. No longer is the individual or society driven by a set of inner values, but instead exists in a state of reactivity, driven by negative external events. We behave, we begin to act in herd-like ways, pleasing and not offending the most emotionally immature and unhealthy members. Rather than taking a proactive approach that examines our ability to affect change in areas over which we have a responsibility, we retreat into a perpetual victim status, blaming others and external forces. We seek quick fix solutions which solve our symptoms rather than the root cause of our crises. We become addicted to technology, more commentary, and more information as the cure for our ills. What this shows us is that if we are going to engage in the fight for justice, we need to be more formed by the ancient wisdom of God's word than by the dopamine fix of notifications and feverish pace of media that we consume. So we're going to look at how the wisdom books form us to be people of justice while also looking specifically at what the wisdom books explicitly say about justice. Sound good? I can't see if you're nodding or saying yes, but sound good. So we're going to pray before we we jump in. 
Father, your, your word says that if anybody asks, that we, if we ask in faith, you will give us wisdom. And we so desperately need your wisdom in this moment. We need to be formed by you and by your spirit and by your word. And so I pray that in this moment, you would enable us to do that, to seek you, to be formed, to open our hearts to your correction and conviction for your glory and for our good. And we pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So the audience of the wisdom literature of the Bible is very different from that of the entire Old Testament. In the Torah or the law, which we looked at last week, and in the prophets, which we're looking at next week, the writers are addressing Israel as a nation. There's a corporate focus. But in the wisdom literature, it's much more personal. It's like a father instructing his son how to live, or a king passing on instructions to the next king about how things work in the kingdom. When you read the law, you have to make all of these jumps through history and culture. And while those are still there in the wisdom books, it kind of feels more timeless. It kind of feels like the kind of wisdom your grandma casually shares with you when you need help or something like that. And more than that, wisdom literature has a specific pedagogy, which is just a fancy word for how somebody teaches, how somebody gives, imparts wisdom or information to somebody else. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, one of these wisdom books, it says this about the pedagogy, the teaching style of wisdom. It says, the words of the wise are like goads, okay? Not goats with a T, but goads with a D. And a goad is actually a device that you use to drive cattle and other animals. It's like this sharp stick. And so when you're kind of driving cattle and you, you poke them with this stick, if they're going off course, you poof, poke them back in the other direction. So it gets you moving. And when you think you're going in the right direction, if you're not tracking, then bam, it'll push you back towards the other direction. And that's kind of how life is. And that is how wisdom teaches us. When you think you're tracking on the right path, there might be a detour coming up. So a disclaimer, if you feel triggered by something today, good. That is the point of wisdom. It is not here to placate your sensibilities or tell you what you want to hear, but to keep you moving down the path. Journalist uh, Finley Peter Dunn is famous for saying that his job was to comfort the afflicted, but afflict the comfortable. So a quick intro to these three books. Proverbs, all right? Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Proverbs is a book of quick, pithy sayings written in a form of Hebrew poetry known as parallelism. And they are not commands for how to live, but sayings meant to guide your life. And they cover topics like finances, marriage, death, sex, work, politics. And they are compiled for us in this book by King Solomon, who is King David's son, and said to be the wisest man who ever lived. And it is an incredibly nuanced book. But at first glance, when you read it, it could appear to sound like all of the Proverbs are saying, everything works out for good people, so don't be a bad person. If you walk away from Proverbs believing that, you didn't quite read it carefully enough. But 
That's what you could read at first blush. It's also said that Solomon is the one who wrote the next wisdom book, Ecclesiastes, maybe after he had become old and grumpy. Uh, this is a book that many people have a hard time believing is actually in the Bible because it seems to have an incredibly cynical viewpoint on life. It declares that everything is meaningless. And it feels like at times you can like file him right next to Nietzsche on your bookshelf. And last, we have the book of Job, which is an epic journey into the meaning of suffering as we witness conversations between a man named Job, who is an incredibly wise man, and yet nevertheless loses everything, and his friends come to comfort him. And so we're going to look at all of these different books in turn today. Proverbs on the surface seems to put forward this lie that no matter who you are, if you're living the right way, that nothing tragic will ever happen to you, and your life will be full of purpose. But if the truth is, if you walk away from Proverbs believing that, then you've missed the road signs on the path to wisdom. Trying to take a shortcut, maybe. Like the Spark Notes version of ancient wisdom. Do good, good stuff happens to you. Do bad, and bad stuff happens to you. But gaining the wisdom to tackle life's biggest questions and challenges is a long journey with a very arduous path that no one can tell you how many dead ends and detours you're going to face. And these three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, might seem like they contradict each other at times about how to live the good life, but they actually reveal how complex and nuanced the path is. However, they are all in agreement about one thing, and that is where the path starts and where it ends. It says in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Ecclesiastes, fear God and keep his commandments, for that is the whole duty of man. And in Job, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. So this fear, which should be interpreted as awe or rightful reverence of who God is, the distance between who God is and who we are, creator and creation, is the most important thing. It shows us that the most important question of life is not why, but who. Who is God and who am I? The very question that Adam and Eve failed to answer that set humanity on the path of foolishness. So in a way, walking the path of wisdom is walking the path back to the Garden of Eden. But if we're going to walk this path of wisdom, we need to know how to define it. So wisdom, briefly defined, is simply the skill to live well. But the biblical usage of this word wisdom is much more multifaceted than that. It's not a, a concept or a force. It's actually an attribute of God that he used to create the world. Biblical wisdom could be defined as the path of walking in step with the order that God wove into the fabric of the world, or the ability to perceive that order and make decisions based on it. And we can speak of wisdom as having three levels. This is really important. The first level of wisdom is general wisdom, which is what you can perceive and observe through the world just by looking and seeing how it works. 
This is where we get the normal observations that if you lie, bad stuff's going to happen to you. You're not going to get away with it, right? These are things we can generally observe from life. The second level of wisdom is what we can call revealed wisdom. And this is wisdom that we could only understand when it's revealed by God. The stuff that doesn't immediately make sense to us. Like when it says that the meek or the weak shall inherit the earth. That doesn't make sense, but it's true. The third level of wisdom is hidden wisdom. And this is the wisdom that belongs only to God, that he has chosen not to reveal. And we'll see more examples of that later. So now that we have this brief overview of all of the wisdom literature of the Bible, here is where we begin our journey through some of its main teaching on the matter of justice. And this might feel like we're riding a bullet train down the path of wisdom and justice rather than like taking a leisurely stroll, but bear with me. All of the points start with P, so <laughs> you're welcome, all right? Let's get into it. So starting with Proverbs, in chapter 1, we see the posture of justice. Proverbs chapter 1, and we're going to skip down to verse 6 of chapter 1. And it says, To understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. So here we have at the outset of the book of Proverbs, the purpose statement of the book of Proverbs. And it says that the purpose of Proverbs is to understand a proverb. <laughs> what? <laughs> did I hear that right? Yes, actually you did. The purpose of Proverbs is actually to understand the path that you're walking on. The path of wisdom actually doesn't have this goal that's easily understandable or set in the distance. It is the goal is actually walking the path. And when you think that you have learned enough and you've finally acquired enough wisdom and you have no more need to learn, you have actually started to veer off course. Because wisdom is a school of a very different kind, not where you simply learn information or a skill, but the capacity to learn and live well. And as it says, the very beginning of that path is the fear of the Lord. The way to start out the path of wisdom from the right place is to understand the who, not the band, but who God is and who we are. And this means to take on a posture of humility before God and before others, to know what you don't know, to be teachable, developing the willingness to learn and grow no matter how much research you've done, not to pretend that you don't know things, that's false humility, but to recognize that you will always have something to learn. If you, if you don't take anything else away from what I'm saying today, take this, that the posture of wisdom and justice is one of humility. And a side note, actually, this is, this is why we do discipleship groups at Collective Church the way that we do. 
We don't make matches for you based on age or education or anything else because we believe that you can learn something from anybody. We believe there's always something that even the most seasoned follower of Jesus has to learn from a brand new believer. So, humility before God and others is essential for how to do justice with wisdom. But the posture of humility does not mean that the path of wisdom is one of passivity or lack or disengagement from the world. And that leads us from the posture of justice to the proactivity of justice. And that's Proverbs 24, verse 10. It says, if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we did not know this. Does not he who weighs the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? What this shows us is that wisdom allows you to recognize when it's time to get involved. When it is the day of adversity, not for you, but for those for whom you have the capacity to help. Recognize that it says the temptation for us is to not get involved, but to remain disengaged. In verse 11, it says, rescue those who are being taken away to death. So when it is a matter of life and death, the call of wisdom is to make it your concern. Notice that it does not say anything about the kind of people who are in trouble. One of the most tragic examples of disunity in the church in our country right now is when people try to pit matters of injustice against one another, that one is more important than another. Listen, there is no lack of worthy causes for the church to passionately engage in for the sake of God's kingdom. No matter how publicized or politicized some issues may become, we believe actually that they are theological issues. They matter to us because they matter to God. And for example, we've always been a church that teaches passionately and unapologetically on the dignity and the value of the unborn. The decision to teach now about a biblical framework for justice and focus on racial injustice does not mean that we are capitulating to cultural trends. We are actually being consistent with our theology. It means that if we are going to be the church in this moment in history, we cannot become enmeshed in toxic conversations that make us choose sides between two important things. We must be shaped by the biblical story. Now listen, no one expects that people will be equally passionate and committed to every single issue, but we also do not get the luxury of apathy. And this also means that we must care enough to get involved and stay involved with issues that are no longer in vogue when they have run their course through the media cycle. So we see that the question is not whether to get involved, but how. In verse 12, it says, if you say we didn't know anything about this, God actually knows. 
It takes wisdom to work for justice. Including yourself in the suffering of others is no small task, and there are very many bad ways to do that, which we'll see when we get to the book of Job. So it is clear that we don't have the option to opt out. So how do we do it? What are we supposed to do? This moves us to the platforms of justice. Proverbs 31, verse 8. It says, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all those who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. Again, we see this unequivocal call to get involved. And here we see the focus shift from those who are in life or death situations to the marginalized and the poor, specifically to stand up for their rights. And rather get, than get into a whole thing on uh, human rights and the origin of human rights here, I would point you back to Ryan's talk from a couple weeks ago when he talked about the image of God. We can also address it today on the Instagram Live at 4 p.m. if you join in on our Instagram page at Collective Church, so start writing in your questions now. But it must be said that the inclusion of these specific people groups within Proverbs means that to work intentionally on behalf of the poor and the marginalized is wisdom. It is not trendy social justice lingo or code word for Marxism. It is not the liberal agenda. It is biblical wisdom because God cares about the poor and the marginalized. It is part of his character. So if we're supposed to care, what does it mean to open your mouth, as it says two times in this passage? Well, what it's not (laughs) is what we've seen a good example of over these past several weeks, which are heated comment battles on social media, not a good example of opening your mouth, reposting something you agree with to passive-aggressively trigger your followers, not a good way to open your mouth for justice, or thinking maybe that posting stuff on social media is actually helping real people. That is not exactly the work of justice. It's not what it means to open your mouth for the cause of the marginalized. It's good, but it's not what it's talking about here. Here's what it can look like. Prayer. If we believe that justice belongs to God alone, ultimately, then prayer is always the most powerful thing that you can do to fight injustice. Another thing we can do is to protest. As Ryan mentioned last week, the biblical authors never lived in a democracy. So the right to protest was never something that they could commend to us, but it is certainly a tool within our tool belt when it can be done with wisdom. But finally, and probably most importantly, is using your platform, which means the sphere of influence that you have, your resources, and what you can be a good steward of, your direct web of relationships, because God has given you influence in a specific zone of life, whether that's your neighbors, your coworkers, students, family, or friends. Rather than trying to build our own platforms, 
or maybe even assuming that nobody needs to hear what we have to say, we need to recognize when it is time to open our mouth and that people are listening. This section of Proverbs was written by a king. His name is King Lemuel, and these Proverbs are him rehearsing what his mother taught him, (laughs) how to be a good king, which means when he opened his mouth that he had direct influence over lots of different things because he was the king. Literally, all he had to do was open his mouth and stuff would change. So what does this teach us? It teaches us that the way to properly wield the influence that God has given you, the resources that God has given you, and to be good stewards, responsible stewards, as we say here at Collective Church, is to wield these things not for yourself, but for the marginalized. So now we transition from the book of Proverbs over to Ecclesiastes, where all of these really nice principles that we've been discussing meet the harsh reality of life under the sun, as it's called. Ecclesiastes is a book of sayings from a man called the preacher, who is a hardened, salty old man who has seen it all and done it all and concluded that everything is vanity or meaningless. These are two translations of one Hebrew word, which is hevel, which is a metaphor meaning a puff of smoke, right? It is temporary. It is elusive. It cannot be harnessed. And because of this, he concludes that there is nothing, not pleasure, money, work, or even wisdom itself that you can count on to bring you the good life. So the best thing that you can do, he says, is to enjoy the lot, the circumstances that God has given to you with the time that you have. And it's important to note that the the grand sweeping philosophical journey that he takes us on is focusing on life under the sun, as he says, meaning that there is nothing in this world that can bring enduring satisfaction that we inherently long for as human beings. So his conclusion is to look above the sun. His conclusion is to still acknowledge God as the giver of life. So Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 16, is where we see the place of justice. He says, Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. And he's speaking of injustice in the form of corruption. Our expectations have misled us to think that we can always trust in certain institutions or places to be places of justice, whether that's the courtroom. For Ecclesiastes, it was probably the temple. And for us, it may even be relationships or people within the church. And the preacher of Ecclesiastes is confronting us with the hard truth that because of the pervasiveness of sin in this world, that the places we should expect and be able to count on justice happening is exactly where you find the most corruption. Many of us discover this firsthand in some of the worst possible ways, whether it's a church leader that you know who's gotten caught in a scandal or businesses who try to exploit people, or even somebody that you trust who you find out is not 
that trustworthy after all. A great parable of this reality is seen in the film Just Mercy, where lawyer uh, Brian Stevenson discovers that there are men on death row in a particular county in Alabama that had absolutely no connection to the crimes that they were convicted of, and he works tirelessly to have them acquitted. And he eventually discovers that over half of these people on death row were wrongfully convicted. Now, these things could make us incredibly cynical and decide that entire institutions or churches or people could not be trusted and should not be trusted, and that the easiest thing to do would be to never trust them again and always watch your back. But the preacher says, hang on. That's what it's like here under the sun. What about above the sun? He says in verse 17, I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and every work. So it is true that you can do everything right and still be a victim of corruption, but this should not lead us to despair. We must confront corruption with faith rather than cynicism. We must recognize what is happening, which he says in verse 18. He says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. <laughs> right, there you go. So God is testing. And this is the same test that was given to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and continues to this day. The test of the fear of the Lord. Will we recognize when we are confronted with injustice and corruption that God is God and that we are not? That he is a God of justice and that in many respects we are actually powerless to affect lasting change. And that we, what we must first do is entrust the matter to God who judges justly. He continues in verse 19, for what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath and man has no advantage over the beasts for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust and to the dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? The reality is that death limits our ability to see lasting change. The perspective we would need in order to know why any of the injustice in the world happens is hidden from us. That is level three wisdom, what God has chosen to conceal from his creatures. And these two questions that the preacher asks refocuses us on the right question, not why, but who. He says, who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward? Who can bring him to see what will be after him? These are not rhetorical questions. The answer is God which is the foundation of wisdom. Only God can see and reveal what will happen, which brings us to our final excursion through Old Testament wisdom in the book of Job, where we see the perspective of justice. 
Now, in the book of Job, at the very beginning, we see a sneak peek into God's throne room, where there's kind of like a heavenly council going on. We have a description of this heavenly reality where there's God, and he's talking with his council, and then Satan comes in. Don't ask me how he got there. Maybe save that for the Q&A. We can talk about it later. But God says to Satan, have you considered Job, this guy, you know, this really righteous man who is wise and fears the Lord? Have you considered how great he is? And Satan says, yeah, uh, actually, he only cares about you because he has a good life. Satan asks this question of God. He says, does Job fear God for no reason? And Satan is trying to uncover a flaw in God's system. He says, people have a utilitarian relationship with you, God. People are only fearing you because it turns out well for them. This guy Job has it all. He has a great life. He has a great family. He has resources, everything. And this is the reason why he has a relationship with you. And Satan confidently asserts, the end result is that if you take that stuff away from him, he will curse you to your face. And God decides, in the most cosmic instance of dramatic irony, unbeknownst to Job, to allow Satan to do his worst to Job, which he does. Job proceeds to lose all of his possessions, all of his children, his wife hates him, and he becomes miserably sick to the point of wanting to die. And these are all of the things that the book of Proverbs says will not happen to the one who fears the Lord and walks the path of wisdom. Now we, as the audience, know why this has happened, because when we read chapter one, the narrator gives us a sneak peek at what no one else has the opportunity to see in this life, which is the hidden wisdom of God. And this is essential for us to appreciate the story of Job because Job actually never finds out the why. He never finds out this whole conversation between God and Satan. This is his test. And after he is at his very lowest point, three of his quote-unquote friends come to, quote-unquote, comfort him. If you've ever heard the expression of Job's comforters, you know that they didn't do a very good job of it. Because what follows are 36 chapters of dense Hebrew poetry reflecting on Job's suffering and trying to discern why, why it's happening. Now, Job's friends are convinced that Job must have done something wrong because this kind of stuff doesn't just happen to somebody in a world created by a good God. Or does it? In this next passage, we get a quick summary of Job's friends and their worldview. And as we listen in on their philosophical, theological debate, uh, which is probably more instructive than the ones that we read on Twitter, uh, we see that Job's friends represent more of a distorted caricature of wisdom than of wisdom itself. Job chapter 4 shows us the platitudes of justice. It says this in verse 7, remember, this is Job's friend speaking, who that was innocent ever perished? Or where were the upright cut off? As I have seen, 
Those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. That's where we get you reap what you sow, right? (laughs) If you are not to blame in this situation, Job, why are you suffering? This is the worldview of someone whose imagination has been shaped by a one-dimensional view of life and of wisdom. It says, I mean, sure, some people are dealt a bad hand every once in a while, but no way. There's no other explanation for what you're dealing with, Job, than God is punishing you for something that you have done. Why would you continue to insist on your innocence if it's only going to prolong your misery? And as the audience, we read this and we're sitting here wanting to like yell at the screen and go, you idiot, Job is innocent, come on. Ah, but this is actually where the mirror gets held up to our own faces. How many times have we assumed that someone experiencing hardship must be getting what they deserve? How many of us have a worldview that looks exactly like this, where our capacity for having compassion on people malfunctions due to a faulty theology? Whereas we, the reader, know why Job is suffering, we actually don't know why anyone else in this life suffers. We cannot know what leads up to the moment of somebody experiencing hardship and pain. And many times we cannot say with certainty why someone is being punished, but we want to believe that it is justice for something that they deserve, that they are reaping what they have sown, because then we don't have to get involved. We don't have to have compassion or think about what led to that point of pain in somebody's life because it's too troublesome to imagine that there are actually other factors at work that might lead us to believe that someone's pain is actually a misfire of justice. And for Job's friends, the insistence on his innocence actually starts to become offensive to them. They go from waxing philosophical about his problems to demanding that he tell them what he did wrong. And by chapter 19, he starts to get fed up. Job has had enough. Job, chapter 19, our final passage, shows us the person of justice. Verse 1, Then Job answered and said, How long will you torment me and break me in pieces with words? These ten times you have cast reproach upon me, are you not ashamed to wrong me? And even if it be true that I have erred, my error remains with myself. If indeed you magnify yourselves against me and make my disgrace an argument against me, know then that God has put me in the wrong and closed his net about me. Behold, I cry out, violence, but I am not answered. I call for help, but there is no justice. Basically, he's saying, what is wrong with you people? Why are you adding insult to injury? Can you not see? Even if this is my fault in some way, that does not change the fact that I am your friend, that I am a human being made in the image of God, and I am suffering. And more than that, 
it does not help rubbing my nose in it. And then Job says, this is actually God's work. And in one way, because he doesn't know the full picture, he's not wrong. God is allowing this to happen to him. And what he cries is injustice. Job's cry against justice, or injustice rather, seems to fall on deaf ears. And in this moment, he stands as a representative for all the oppressed, the marginalized, and the wrongfully accused when he asks, where is justice? But Job's cry would not be answered in the way that he wanted. While Job is the prime example of an innocent sufferer and justice was on his side, he would not see it in the way that he was demanding. The story of Job ends with Job demanding that God show up and account for the injustice that he experiences. And then he does show up. God shows up. But when he does, it is not to answer the why question. Job never finds out. God doesn't explain the prologue with Satan being released to wreak havoc. Instead, God answers the who question. In chapter 38, God says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Before God, all stand accused. Justice is his work, and anyone who demands justice from God must first reckon with the fact that if justice were really done, we would all find ourselves on the wrong side. Like Job, no matter what we have done or haven't done or what the prologue of our story is, before a God of justice, we stand condemned. Even Job, who is truly innocent, does not have a rebuttal for God when he shows up. He says in chapter 42, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This, friends, is wisdom. The humility to recognize that you may have all of the facts, experience, and history on your side, but before God you can have nothing but reverence. The fear of the Lord is the beginning, the middle, and the end of wisdom. And with Job's wise response of repentance to God, he is vindicated and God wins the cosmic bet. Rather than cursing God to his face, Job repents. And not only was Satan proven wrong, but now Job's legacy as a righteous sufferer lives on as an example for thousands of years for suffering people to draw strength from as we walk the path of wisdom. In verse 23 of chapter 19, he said, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book. And they were. Not only that, but he becomes a beautiful foreshadowing of the ultimate righteous sufferer, which is Jesus. Whereas Job was innocent of what he was accused, Jesus was truly innocent and entirely without sin. And yet, he allows injustice to be done to him, to absorb the debt of all humanity. 
in Job, we see that God allows evil just enough room to accomplish the exact opposite of what it intends. Satan attempted to prove Job's insincere fear of the Lord, but ended up proving the exact opposite. And in the same way, Jesus endured ultimate suffering as the only truly righteous man who ever lived and experienced the injustice of a gruesome death on the cross. And in that moment, when it looked like evil had won, Jesus was securing the greatest victory in all of history. If we cry for justice without trusting in God's plan through Jesus, we find ourselves on the wrong side. We must come to grips with our own sin and see the injustice that was done upon the Messiah, Jesus, for our sake. But as Job says in chapter 19, verse 25, he says, I know that my Redeemer lives. Because with Jesus, death does not have the last word. Just as he rose from the grave to defeat death, injustice in this life will be met with justice in the next. Jesus' resurrection answers the question of Ecclesiastes, punching a hole in the cosmos so we can see above the sun. What awaits us is eternal life. So the question for us today as we close is, will we humble ourselves to see the wisdom of God's plan?